You're listening to You Talk, I Listen, We Do, with attorney Ty Pinkins, 2024 candidate for United States Senate, ready to represent our great state of Mississippi and help bring about positive change for you, your family, and our communities. We're living in a time where all Mississippians can benefit from honest and capable leadership. Regardless of the color of your skin or what's in your bank account, jobs, housing, healthcare, education, and so many other areas can stand some fixing. I'm running for United States Senate in 2024. Along the way, I'll be talking to you every Wednesday at 5 p.m. right here on WMPR about what matters to you. We'll have guests every week discussing issues surrounding jobs in the economy, healthcare, education, and so much more. Tune in weekly so you can talk, I can listen, and we can do Oh, I got you. There you go. I did that whole introduction. <laughs> you didn't even hear it. <laughs> I shined the light on you. Welcome to the show. How are you today? Oh, Brother Pinkins, I'm good. How you doing? And how's I am you? doing well. <laughs> how's a good doctor? <laughs> She's doing well. She is doing well. It's so good to have you on the show today. I remember when we met, uh, uh, what, several weeks ago at the airport. You were landing here in Jackson and you was on the move. Correct, correct. I was uh, I was heading up to Tupelo that Tuesday or Wednesday uh, to do a Black History session there. And then that Saturday night, uh, Women for Progress was celebrating their 45th anniversary. And they asked me to keynote because I was in town. So I had a mm-hmm. chance to uh, address those esteemed sisters at their gala event at the Capitol Club down in Jackson. Well, you know what? I think fate brought us together. Yes, you sir. Know, you passed by each other. And, and, and when I heard your story and all that you have done um, in your work, I was just so excited to get you on the show. And thank you so much for agreeing to uh to come on so now um dr mac your achievements and contributions to but first before we even get into that before we even get to that let's talk a little bit about you and and your upbringing here in jackson so tell us about um uh growing up here in jackson and and heading off to mississippi state and ultimately um out to seattle yeah you know so i was born in jackson in 62 um 1962 and went to school there at the time you know, I lived on Fairbanks Street, Sitway, then Fairbanks, and literally a couple of blocks over from Brown Elementary and Rowan Junior High School. So I went to Brown, and then because of integration, uh, at the time I didn't understand why Brown is is a couple of streets over, but they're busting us out to French Elementary. But that all had to do with integration. So I uh, spent a little bit of time at, at French Elementary. I uh, went to Junior High School at Rowan Junior High. Graduated from Lanier in 1980. Um, and then went to Mississippi State to study engineering. My mom was convincing me that, you know, I needed to go into engineering. Now, at the time, I didn't know anything about engineering. And if you know Jackson, uh, where I lived on Fairbanks Street, right down across from, you know, parallel to Mill Street is the is the train yard. So right. I'm literally thinking I'm going to Mississippi State to learn how to drive a train. That's how little <laughs> I knew about engineering. Um, and so I'm sitting in, in, in my thermodynamics class. I can't even spell thermodynamics now. And these guys are asking the professor questions about the first and second law of enthalpy. And I'm like, man, I don't get this. But uh-huh. know, buckled down, uh, got through it. Uh, and then when I graduated, went to Seattle in 87. And uh-huh. I stayed in Seattle up until 2005. But while I was there, I worked as a mechanical engineer and designed wastewater treatment facilities. And my specialty was a startup engineer. And one of the things that benefited me when I was at Mississippi State that really solidified and made me understand that it was it was it was cool to be smart and it was dumb to be dumb 
was when I got a chance to, to intern uh, or co-op. So I co-op with John Deere in Ottumwa, Iowa, while I was going to Mississippi State. And I also had a chance to work at Packard Electric, uh, which is a division of General Motors that was in Clinton, Mississippi. I don't think that uh, Packard is still with uh, down in Clinton. But mm -hmm. having a chance to, to get hands-on experience and see the, the practical application of what I was studying theoretically made all the difference in the world. And for the first time, I could see that education pays. Because when I was, uh, I had finished my freshman year at Mississippi State, and I was making almost as much money as my mother. I had four benefits, the whole nine. And the hardest thing I was doing physically was lifting a cup of coffee. It was just, mm -hmm. it was showing you that that it pays to get an education. So when I graduated, uh, but, but even before then, when I was in Jackson, going to high school, I worked as a lifeguard over at the Whitfield Millrose uh, public swimming pool. And I met this young lady who was from Tacoma. And when I met her, I fell in love. And I told her, look, when I graduate from Mississippi State, I'm heading right up to Seattle. And that's what I did. I, as soon as I graduated in 87, went up to Seattle and I stayed up there for 18 years. But I was also president of the NAACP, got mm -hmm. involved. And our first year as with me as president, our branch won the Class 1A Thalheimer Award as the best branch in the in the association. And that award was presented to us by the late chairman of the board, the late Julian Bond. And mm -hmm. uh, so I had students that would come and intern with me while I was an engineer. And one of the students that interned with me was a young man named Justin Steele, who graduated from UVA, uh, where your wife is now. Um, mm -hmm. also associated with the National Society of Black Engineers. So they asked me to come in keynote. And little did I know at the time that they were looking for a new executive director. And when they heard me, they heard this because the mission statement of the organization uh, is to, to, it has a cultural component where you have to be culturally competent, but also demonstrate academic excellence. So they, they saw those qualities embodied in, in my, my, my body of work and asked me to, to apply for the executive director. And I did. And in 2005, I left Seattle. And when I left Seattle, they named a day in my honor of all things, mm -hmm. February 12th. Um, but we, we were really active with, with, the, with the NAACP, very, very active. And so when I became executive director, stayed there and created some of the largest engineering camps in the history of America for black girls or for black children, period. And I'm mm -hmm. saying black girls, the reason that popped into mind is because in Jackson at Mount Hope uh, Baptist Church, where my mom goes to church, and um, Pastor Jerry Young is at that church, uh, we had the largest engineering camp in the history of America for black girls. We had 360 third through fifth grade black girls for three weeks studying engineering, and they were all taught by college co-eds from around the country. But I had these types of camps located in 10 cities across the United States. Um, and then in 2013, I retired from the organization and just, <laughs> and then I got inside this history thing. And this brother, we're going to get to that history thing because that's what's most fascinating about me and actually kind of leads into our next guest also. So we have, we, you know what? I, I, I just lucked out today because I got, <laughs> I got two giants on the show. Um, in addition to Dr. Mack, we also have um, a, a wonderful, wonderful gentleman, and I, uh, he he and I actually met. Uh, he interviewed me last uh, last year yeah, when I was yeah. some work here in Mississippi. And I don't know if you remember it, <laughs> you remember it, uh, yes, sir, or not. But we have Mr. Benjamin Dixon of the Benjamin Dixon Show uh, yes, 
with us this evening in the studio. And I'm so excited to talk to you about some of the national issues yes, that's sir. going on. And with, with Dr. Mack um, mentioning the history book, and I know that's closely retired to uh, closely tied to African-American uh, education. Um, one of the things that that we are going to get into is some of the, the issues that are going on on a national level with regard to education. I mean, we're out of time. Let, me, let me say this. That, that's how Ben and I met. You know, ben, uh, really? Ben, I, I'll let you tell the story, Ben. Well, look, Ben, you you tell the story before we jump into this, because I know you got some you got some comments to make on on the stuff that's going on in our education system in school. So tell us how you and him met. Well, first of all, Ty, thank you so much for having me and Dr. Mack. It's always a pleasure. You know, that's Dr. Mack is my road dog as far as <laughs> this politics and media and particularly history. Um, I met Dr. Carl Mack when we were both on uh, Roland Martin's show, and uh, he was doing a session on Juneteenth. And we were all on sh on the show to celebrate the um, the designation of Juneteenth as a federal holiday. And here comes Brother Carl Mack, Dr. Carl Mack, saying, <laughs> uh, 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 not so fast because <laughs> each state has their own individual emancipation day and right. each state should have their own, you know, so he gave a robust history of it. And, and, you know, it was a moment where we had to look at ourselves and say, did we really know this? Now yeah. we're on television, we're rolling, we're rolling Martin. And, and I just decided to keep it real. I was like, I did not know yeah. anything that this brother was saying. And, um, mm. and, and, and because of that exchange, we linked up and we've been, we've been tight as thieves ever since. Yeah. Been thick as thieves ever since. Yeah. But then, but that's why, that's why your work is so important. Uh, Dr. Mack, uh, 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 creating the, the book, the calendar, making sure that that, that information, the right information is out there for people to learn. Well, and, and but Benjamin, back to you. We all understand what's well. We try to understand what's going on in our on in our education system, where we have people pulling books uh, yes. from school. You hear about um, what's going on down in Florida with Ron DeSantis. You hear about um, them banning books from the That's schools, right. and it, we don't have here in Mississippi. We don't have to look too far. Right here in right. Mississippi, books authored by giants such as Toni Morris uh, have yes. been banned in some schools, actually over in Madison County, which is not far from this studio. And even so, Mississippi's own Angie Thomas, her mm. book, The Hate You Give, was banned mm. by a school here in the area where she grew up. Imagine that. Wow. Wow. Imagine that. So uh, uh, the reason I, I was so excited when you when you popped on the show, Benjamin, is talk to us a little bit about that. Why do you think this is happening now? Yeah, no, I think uh, history shows us that when you start banning books, the next step is burning books. The next step mm -hmm. is fascism. I mean, this is a mm -hmm. step towards their goal. We're dealing with a group of people. And and, and listen, like I, I'm not going to categorize all conservatives as monsters. Right. I'm not going to mm -hmm. do that. But we're dealing with a particular group of conservatives who have a very specific agenda, and that is to block the knowledge of what this country really is, what this country actually did, and what people who have studied it believe are the right steps to move forward. Like, I think that's the core of it. They honestly want to graze a generation that is completely clueless about their history. And if they can raise a generation of black folks who are clueless about their history, then they can get away with whatever they want to get away with. Last but not least, it is good politics 
for the Donald Trump-styled Republican Party and the Ron DeSantis-styled Republican Party. It plays well for their base because we're in a time in American history when people can get ahead in this country. Well, well, Dr. Mack, you probably will correct me on this. This has always been America to get ahead with racism, to get ahead with discrimination and by targeting black people. And, and you know, and when, when you and I spoke about this a while back, you know, I contend that the catalyst to it, the, the thing that really accelerated it, because it's always been going on. I mean, you can go back to um, the Confederate general who, who uh, Stephen D. Lee, um, mm -hmm. who was a Confederate general and the first president of Mississippi State. He was mm -hmm. a member of the Confederate Veterans History Committee, and he talked about using that pen to make sure mm -hmm. that the uh, lost cause, as you put it, that 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 ideology is what permeated in history books. And, and the ideology behind lost cause, and I don't want to use phrases that people may not be aware of, but in the, in the basic ideology of the lost cause is, is, is several things. Number one, the, the South should not be blamed for starting the Civil War. The Civil War was all about Northern aggression. So they just, you know, I don't, let's say that they forgot. They yeah. just completely um, um lied about history because they're the ones that fired on Fort Sumner. They're That's the right. ones that seceded from the Union. That's right. This ideology that the, the South did not start the Civil War, the ideology that slave owners were benevolent people, the ideology that Blacks, we were happy to be enslaved. These are the ideologies of That's the right. wrong cause. And so what I contend, one of the things that happened is when you take a look at this perfect storm that hit, we had COVID, everybody was locked in even though we had been seeing that through technology, black folks being abused, killed by police. But during COVID, all of us watched what happened on, I believe it was May 25th of 2020, when uh, Chauvin had his, his knee on George Floyd's neck. We all watched that horrific scene. And as a result of that, you now saw an accelerant to go inside of history and now pull these Confederate monuments down. So when that accelerant started, and history is clear, it's being stated, whenever we as a people begin to make progress, racism doubles down. And all you got to do is look at the Civil War. The Civil War was fought over the institution of slavery. And right. so during that, that period of time from 65 to, to 80, you had three sweeping pieces of legislation. You had the abolishment of slavery with the 13th Amendment, which is you should not, if you're going to have a day to commemorate the end of America's original sin, That's right. it certainly was not June 19, 1865. It was December 6, 1865, when Georgia became the 27th of 36 states to ratify the amendment that abolished slavery. Because after June 19th, there was still a quarter of a million black folks still enslaved in Delaware and Kentucky. And then you had 1868, the passage of the 14th Amendment, which gave black folks citizenship in this country. And then the passage of the 15th Amendment in 1870. When these things happened, you saw the rise of America's homegrown terrorists, the Ku Klux Klan. You began to see black codes. You saw the law change in Plessy versus Ferguson. You saw grandfather clause, poll tax. Speaking of poll tax, you know, as we get inside the voting, you know, here is my mother's poll tax card. And with yeah. my mother... And so many other black folks literally paid two dollars yeah. to vote. No, that's interesting. That's fascinating, and it leads me to another question yeah. that I want. I want uh, 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 Benjamin to, to kind of talk about. So now we twenty twenty four is coming. Yeah. It's, it's here. It's yeah. here. You have candidates running already. 
That's Most right. of the Republican, a lot of the Republican Party has already announced uh, their candidacy for um, for presidency in 2024. Joe Biden's already announced. Given what we just talked about with regard to how they're so adamant in just muffling, dumbing down not only this generation, but the next generation in particular, we have people like Tim Scott, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ron, Ron DeSantis, Donald Trump. Do you think that 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 we are underestimating the damage that could be caused if one of these people actually gets reelected? Do you think we're we're underestimating it? I love that question because that's exactly what's happening at this juncture. If if we can't see the realistic threat that Donald Trump poses to this country in terms of democracy itself, and relegate in the history, those words, that language was a two persons. And so anyone who sits at this 24 and just kind of casually dismisses it or says that they have to, you know, they're tired of voting for the lesser two evil. I am too. But we're dealing with some definitive evils that are coming from the Republican Party right now. There's no way in the world they're going to let Tim Scott, who I think is he's probably a decent and honorable guy, but he's not going to get more than one percent. We're dealing with Ron DeSantis or we're dealing with Donald Trump. But you think do you think Tim Scott's nomination is actually a strategy? Because, you know, yes. Uh, yes. The Democratic Party, the Democratic Party can't do anything without the black vote. There's a lot of us. There are a lot yes. of us. They need the black vote as a base. That's a fact. Yes. The Republican Party understands that the, the demographics in this country are changing and not in Republicans favor. Do you right. think Tim Scott's nomination is a strategic plan to put someone who is black on on the um, playing field and say, you yeah. know, we understand we're not going to let you uh, be president. That's not going to happen, Timmy. What, but what we will do is if you can excite enough black people, perhaps we can pull some of those and we'll give you vice president and we'll give you some. Do you think that's part of the strategy? So I, I think it is part of their strategy, but I don't think it's a part of their strategy to actually win enough black votes. I think it's part of their strategy to give the appearance that or give cover. Tim Scott is there to provide racial cover for the Republican mm -hmm. Party. He's not going to get enough black folks to vote for him to actually warrant the VP spot. But what he can do is give plausible deniability to all the racism we're getting ready to, to endure. They're going to be able to say whatever they want to say. And Tim Scott would be able to say, well, look, I'm their good black friend, so they can't be racist. Um, mm -hmm. But last but not least, their strategy to win is depressing the black vote, right? Mm -hmm. They're not going to try to mobilize. They don't honestly believe that they can get people to come out for Tim Scott, but they do believe that they can discourage black folks from going out. Yeah, well, but, but, but Ty, let me let, let me ask Ben, Ben, you're clearly an expert on this social media thing. And one of the things that we cannot deny as part of their strategy, and I'm with Ty with this, of, of using uh, Tim Scott, but look at the number. I am overwhelmed on my social media with the number of black folks who appear to be in agreements with some of the nonsense coming from the Republican Party. So we could speak to that. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for letting me speak on that, too, because there is a concentrated effort, a concerted effort 
to literally use social media the way they did in 2020 and 2016 to depress the vote. But this is how they're going to depress the vote. Right now, the topic that is getting a lot of people, a lot of black folks to co-sign with the conservative movement uh, is the LGBTQIA issues, the transgender issue. Mm -hmm. And you, if you look at the social media influencers, and I love these guys. I'm, I'm, I'm going to name a couple of guys, and I'm not naming them to put them on the spot. Um, D.L. Hewley, uh, Earthquake. You look at outlets like Baller Alert, Hollywood Unlocked, all of these really big influencers on social media, particularly Instagram, they have been useful pawns for the conservative movement, feeding this type of conservative thinking and ideology to black folks who were unfortunately a lot of folks are eating it up. And they're regurgitating it and they're spreading it. So it's, and it's not just the LGBTQIA issues. I'm just giving that as an example. Um, there's a lot of black folks who oppose immigration. And that kind of language is starting to fester a lot in the black community. And it's being pushed by, by, by I, I'm sure D.L. Hewley is a well-meaning guy. But when he's forwarding links that come from like, the New York Post, which is as far right as Fox News, right? When you're we're spreading information that is great propaganda at best, right? And I'm, I'm and I hate to use the term, though, a lot of people may not know in terms of great propaganda, but it's it's definitely at a level of propaganda that should have been screened professionally. Um, but they share those links, Dr. Mack, and before you know it, it is going super viral, specifically in the black community, which I 100% agree is their strategy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a strategy that's been repeated over and over throughout history. And, and, you know, and Ben, the other part, too, is, you know, I know, you know, on, on the whole religious side, because if there's any if, if there's a group of people who are spiritual. Right. Now you want yeah. to talk about that whole right wing spiritual side and, and what happens with black folks. But but if you could yeah. give us some insight on, on how that how religion it's very much a part of politics, uh, absolutely. Separation of church and state thing. Explain that a little bit to us. You said religion is 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 certainly a part of politics. Explain that a little bit deeply for us, uh, Benjamin. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and I'm actually sitting at uh, uh, at our church getting ready for Bible study now. That's how religious black folks are. Like we we love the Lord. He, he heard our cry and pitied our every groan. You know what I mean? Like, but so. Conservatives really do know that they can use religion as a means to get into the black community. Think of Paula White supremacists. I mean, I'm sorry, Paula White. Think of yeah. Paula White and how she infiltrated the black community only to turn around and take that power and give it to Donald Trump when he ran for office. And so similarly, there are intentional targets inside of the black church to work our uneasiness you know, I don't I'm not going to call the black church. I ain't going to say we all homophobic or transphobic, but we certainly have some uneasiness about mm -hmm. that community. And we see conservatives all the time pushing that button. They love pushing that button. Let's talk about abortion. Right. A woman's right to choose. They will push that button because they know a lot of black folks. We oppose that on a personal individual basis. And what they're hoping is what they can take individually. Like you have individual black folks who would oppose abortion, but they're not going to oppose it for other people's rights. The conservative movement in this country, they're hoping they can 100% take our personal beliefs and turn it on us to make us at least back away and say we won't support uh, uh, anybody who's pro-life. We won't support anybody who's pro-immigration. We won't support anybody who's pro-marriage uh, equality. So absolutely, the religious track is their number one technique right now. Yeah, and I think what they've realized over, over the years is that even though Black people vote Democrat a lot, 
we have uh, the black community has a lot of conservative conservative values that we oh, that we, that we don't want to talk about amongst ourselves. <laughs> Listen, I will gladly talk about it amongst ourselves, except the fact that you know. Let me let me back up and say this: They know how religious and how spiritual black folks are. It's, it's the the problem is is that they're not willing to sever their racism. Mm-hmm. from their religiosity. They won't even give black folks a chance to actually entertain the Republican Party because even if we go over there for religious reasons, which I would disagree with, but let's say a lot of black folks wanted to go there, we, the reason we won't and the reason that we can't is because we're met immediately with their racism. So they're so committed to their racism, they can't even really capitalize on the fact that black folks are extremely conservative. Well, you know what? Unless I, I want to move on to another topic before we lose you, Benjamin, because I know you got to go. Um, soon uh, to Bible study. Um, I want to talk about something that's been on my mind for a, a minute now. Um, our good brother Clarence Thomas, right? <laughs> so, and so you you see what's going on with the Supreme Court, and I think people are starting to understand how important it is, and linking that to um, uh, electing senators, senators, uh, United States senators, and how much power they have. And sitting people on the Supreme Court. One example uh, is you have what Amy Coney Barrett, Brett Kavanaugh, mm-hmm. what is it, Neil Gorsuch, I believe, Neil um, Gorsuch. Mm-hmm. who were who were uh, nominated by uh, Donald Trump, Trump. And, yes. and confirmed over the over the last several years. And the outcome of that uh, uh, surprise, Roe v. Wade right. turned right. over. That the people who we put on the Supreme Court are so 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 important. But what's also important is us realizing what's going on on the court right now with regard to the situation with Clarence Thomas and taking these kickbacks and stuff. So can you talk a little bit about how is it that the highest court of the land, one, apparently doesn't have any ethical uh, 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 tools that they use to keep themselves in order, and the United States Senate, our United States Senate, is reluctant, in in my view, reluctant to do their job and implement those ethical rules and guidelines. Right. That you know what's wild about that is that every other level of the federal judiciary has yeah. ethical codes. Right. But if you make it high enough to the Supreme Court, you're now no longer bound by an ethical code. No rule, and no matter if you do anything. <laughs> exactly. And so Clarence Thomas has 100%. He's been on the Supreme Court uh, 30 years. He has Mm -hmm. been friends with Harlan Crow, who has given him like half a million dollars worth of vacations, who has purchased his mother's house, who has helped his son, his his nephew with college tuition or with with private school tuition. Um, He's known him for 25 years. So he was on the Supreme Court before he met this Republican billionaire. And he Clarence Thomas got away with this. Mind you, he's still in the court. No investigation. He Mm -hmm. got away with by saying, well, this was a friend that he's known for a long time. You didn't meet this guy until he got on the Supreme Court. That's mm-hmm. number one. Number two, the, the Senate, they are, they are afraid, particularly, let's, I want to go to Joe Biden specifically. They're all institutionalists. They believe more in these institutions than they believe in the threat that's coming from their colleagues across the aisle. They trust in these institutions, even if the Republicans are trying to destroy these institutions. And so they are literally just being, you know, lambs to the wolves at this point. Is institutionalism more more important than accountability? Uh, for, for a lot of people in the Senate, it absolutely is. 
That's the question. That's, 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 the, that's the fundamental question with regard to yes. what's going on in the Supreme Court and not only the Supreme, the Supreme Court, but in other branches of our there, government. There you go. Happening, and you know it is. And, that, and that's the point, Tom. See, sometimes we'll get locked in on just the Supreme Court. And so when these elections come around, we got to remember Trump's legacy is still in play and it will be in play for a long time because not only did he appoint Supreme Court justices, but you got to look at all those federal appointees that he made. And Mississippi is now dealing with the impact of those federal judges that he placed on the bench. And Ben, you could certainly speak to that. Yes, I will. And I'm going to let this be the last thing because I got a table full of folks who are ready to study the word <laughs> of the Lord. And I'm, I'm in here talking politics. But um, I, 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 uh, Dr. Mack, it is. Dr. Mack, I'm actually, you got to prep me one more time, that, that prelude. What was it, your it, it, was, it, it was the impact of federal appointees by, by presidents as well as those appointees that they make to the highest court in the land. It's those federal judges. Oh, yeah. no, no. Across the board, these federal appointments are critical, especially right now when we have threats to our institutions at this high level. If you talk to people who are honest in the FBI, if you talk to uh, different levels of people who work in the government, they will tell you that the threat is coming from inside the house now. Mm -hmm. And so who gets appointed to some of these key positions are extremely critical now, especially in light of the ongoing threats to our democracy. So it's not, you're right, Dr. Mack, it's not just the Supreme Court, but it's also every appointment across the board and the, that the president makes specifically. Um, gentlemen, listen, thank y'all. So one, I apologize for being late no. because I, I wanted to be in this conversation a lot longer and I'm looking forward to watching the replay because I know the conversation y'all are getting ready to have is about to be fine. It is. And you know what, uh, uh, Benjamin, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for sharing your time with me. Thank you for interviewing you. me last night yes. and bringing that yes, issue about, about those farmers to like, can't wait to have you back on because you're locked in now. You got to come back on the show. Anytime you need me, Dr. Mack, it's a pleasure. Ty, oh, thank you fun. so much. You're absolutely welcome. Thank, thank you so much. Bye-bye. All right, Ben. Dr. Mack, you, yeah. you, you told me that Ben was going to bring the fire when he came. <laughs> the, brother, the brother is just an absolute wealth of knowledge. I mean, I mean, granted that he's pastor in the church now, but man, you want to get out and talk politics, man. That is the man to have on your show. I, I, I don't care what level of politics, where it's at, and, and anytime you need him, you know, but you'll have his contact information, but please always feel free to reach out to me. But he is a beautiful, beautiful brother. Yeah, but you know what? And thank you for that. But Dr. Mack, now we want to shine a spotlight on you. You are, and we, we talk about um, Mississippi natives um, who achieve great things all the time on this show. You're you're uh, born and raised in Jackson, Mississippi, um, attended Mississippi State University, uh, went off to Seattle, uh, became president of one of the county um, uh, NAAC, NAACP chapters, and then became the president of the National Society of Black Engineers. You have achievements that are just out of this world, your achievements and contributions in the field of engineering and diversity have been uh, remarkable. Could you share with us your journey and how you became involved with the National Society of Black Engineers? Well, you know, like I said, uh, when, when I was uh, when I was working in Seattle um, as an engineer, I understood how, what, you know, one of the, the gateways to getting me into engineering was the opportunity, you know, having the opportunity to, to work as an intern mm -hmm. and actually see it feel it and smell it and know that education is real. It could get me there. And so having benefited from that, 
When I worked at King County, I was the first black engineer straight out of college that they ever hired. Really? And so when I'm asking them about other black engineers or interns, they're telling me you can't, they can't find them. Right. I tell you what, (laughs) me look, me go look. So I literally went in there and, and, and when you talk about the org chart, I am the lowest I am the base on the ore chart. I'm nowhere near. You're in the mail room. You're in the mail room. (laughs) Just above the mail room. I am literally just above the mail room, even though I'm an engineer. But when that history started getting into me, the idea of being silent. Oh, no. I went up to the highest level. When I tell you I was was nowhere in that hierarchy of, of, of management, but I went up to the to the executive director of Metro King County. And I said, Mr. Sanders, this is absolutely criminal. Don't tell me that you all can't find black engineers. Whoever's looking, get them out of the way. And and he literally said to me, Carl, just go do it. Anybody has a question, you send them back to me. I literally just took it over. That's fascinating. I went to the University of Washington, began to bring black students in. And again, one of those students I brought in uh, was a young man who was on the national board of the National Society of Black Engineers. But I remember his first day at work, the first day he showed up, Right. I had a meeting with uh, Congressman McDermott, who was a, a Washington state representative, to talk about discrimination that was going on at the Social Security Administration. Mm-hmm. He and I got in a car and we went over to talk about discrimination on a national level for Social Security. Mm-hmm. Even in every civil rights issue I was involved in, because I believe that education has four components. There is a training component, which is what every school gives you, teach you how to read, write, that kind of thing. There is a spiritual component. You need to believe in something that's bigger than you. That's what gives you a conscience. There's a financial component to your education. You need to know how to manage money. Otherwise, you'll be a working slave for the rest of your life. Right. Then you need a cultural component. How can you call yourself educated and you can't? You don't even know your own experience in this country? No. And, and I'll tell you this. I can ask a thousand people. When does America celebrate America's independence? Hold on, because I know where you're finna go. <laughs> I know where you're about to go to. So now you mentioned the cultural component, right? Mm-hmm. You're also the author of Black Heritage Day, which mm-hmm. shines a light on Black history. Um, what exactly is Black Heritage Day? Because I think this is leading into what you're, where you're going. What exactly yeah. is Black Heritage Day that you created, and why did you feel the need? And, and so listen... So I graduated from Mississippi State. I am a formally educated man. And yet I couldn't give you a hundred words about the black experience. And so I'm at work one day and this white, one of my white coworkers who was also an engineer, but he loved history, studied history, may have even had a minor in history. So he comes up and he's talking to me about Henry O. Flipper, this article he saw in the New York Times or the New York Post. One, it may have been the Times he, he saw the article in about Henry O. Flipper who was the first black to graduate from the West Point Military Academy, which was America's first engineering school. So it's this white man that's telling me this most intriguing story. And that when O'Flipper was there, he had to endure the silence treatment, which means nobody spoke to him. And yet he graduated from America's first engineering school, one of the top uh, educational academic institutions in the world today. West Point is, is, is top, top notch. But yet he graduated. And I'm thinking... Here, this black man graduated during a time where he he was born during the time of slavery, but he graduated from West Point. And I'm sitting there thinking, white folks are smarter than me when I was at Mississippi State. What would have been my my resolve would have been deeper, stronger, 
had I known about Henry Flipper when I went to Mississippi State, I wouldn't have had that feeling of inferiority in my head. But I felt ashamed that this white man knew more about my culture than I did. So every day I used to sit at work and I had a word of the day calendar. You know, every day you just flip it over and it gives you some unabridged word from the dictionary. You use it throughout the day to help increase your vocabulary. August 16, 1990, I'm driving back to work from lunch and God gives me the concept to make a calendar that every day of the year, there's somebody out of black history for every day of the year. Only takes you a couple of minutes to read it. And this is what God showed me. He showed me that August 16, 1990, for the next two and a half years, all I did was research. Now, there was no internet. The computer had a, a hard drive of 40K. <laughs> so you think about that. So every book, I didn't know where to go, where to start. I spoke to these two guys. told me to speak to two guys, one named Tony Morris, uh, 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 another guy, Marvin Moore. So Tony told me about this library called the Schoenberg. I didn't know what the Schoenberg Library was, but at the time, it was the greatest single literary source for housing Black information. So we called the Schoenberg and said, give me some books where to start. And then Tony Morrison told me about a software called PageMaker. So he, you know, I told him what the vision was, and he literally got on PageMaker and made it. I knew, okay, boom, we're there. So the two of those guys dropped out, and I started doing the calendar myself. So the first time I did, I completed Black Heritage Day. Um, I got articles around the country. I, I spent $25,000 on five credit cards, got them printed, and people were just buying the calendars. It was just amazing. And so I did the fourth version of Black Heritage Day uh, probably a couple of years ago. And since that time, I've done three other versions. I did a version that's all women, 366 days of Black women. And, and again, every person that's in the calendar is on a day significant in their life. They were born on that day. They achieved something on that day or they died on that day. But everybody is on a day significant in their life. That's the uniqueness of it. Um, so after I did the all women calendar, I did an all sports calendar. Same concept. Every day that you flip that calendar, whatever you're reading, it happened on that day. And then after I did the sports calendar, I did a science, technology, engineering, and math calendar, a STEM calendar. Uh, 366 days. So, but but those last three I have not published yet. So so that's how I ended up doing it. But back to how I got to Nesby. So this one student uh, being involved with civil rights, we're studying history and we're learning engineering. So he goes back to the organization, tells them about me. They invite me to speak. I speak at the national convention. They're looking for a new executive director. They asked me to apply for the job. I applied for the job and. From that point, uh, I think when I joined this, but we had a little over 12,000 members. Four years later, I'm going out from campus to campus, and we grew to almost 36,000 in four years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating. That's fascinating. And I've, 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 uh, I have a copy of your uh, your calendar, and it's, it's yeah. absolutely just astonishing to look at it and, and learn all the things that I, I did not know. And I wanted to ask you a question about um, our collective learning here in this country is, is do you think the reluctance to accurately teach this country history um in high school has it led to things like january the 6th and uh the broader theme of white nationalism in this country oh make no mistake about it make absolutely no mistake about it even now you have a white guy that's running for lieutenant governor craig is it craig mcdaniels that's mm -hmm. name yeah yeah mcdaniels now, 
Okay, so this guy wants to tell everybody when it comes to the Confederate flag, it had nothing to do with race. He said mm -hmm. that Confederate flag is about heritage, it's about honor, and maybe he uses some other adjective. But see, he can use the talking to folks because people don't know the history of the Confederacy. And all you got to do is this. If I ask people who was the president of the Confederacy, especially from Mississippi, we ought to know that the president right. of the Confederacy was Jefferson Davis. Right. But if I ask you who the vice president of the Confederacy is, most of us would struggle on that question. And the no, vice no. president of the Confederacy was a man named Alexander Stevens. So for uh -huh. those of you who are listening, I need you to look up the cornerstone speech by Alexander Stevens. And uh -huh. in that speech, Alexander, and you got to understand what the cornerstone is in a foundation. When right. you lay a foundation, a cornerstone is the strongest part of the foundation. And what Alexander Stevens said is that the cornerstone of the Confederacy was white superiority, black inferiority, and the institution of chattel slavery. <laughs> Furthermore, all I would ask people to do, and, 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 and Chris McDaniels, or, or, you know, why don't you explain to all Mississippians what your forefathers wrote in 1861 when Mississippi seceded from the Union? Because in Mississippi's letter of secession, Mississippi said, we are going to state the prominent reason we are leaving the union. And the prominent reason is thoroughly identified with the institution of slavery. That's what your forefathers said. That's what that Confederate flag represents. It represents white superiority. The only honor that it has is the honor of white folks thinking that they're far better than us. And now when you're talking about banning books, because it makes little Miss Karen or little Mr. Chrissy feel uncomfortable. Well, how uncomfortable you think we feel living in a state where there's a Confederate flag flying over state buildings? Well, I guess my one of my questions is, I'm trying to understand the psychology behind, because when you ban books from schools, whether those books are regarding the LGBTQ plus community, whether those books are regarding the black community, the Asian community, or anything different, when you start banning those books and depressing education, yeah, you hurt you hurt some people. You hurt you hurt black children, you hurt Asian children, you hurt children that may identify as LGBTQ or other, but you also hurt your own children. And I'm trying to understand the psychology of of being willing to dumb down your own children for a broader purpose that most of the country doesn't even agree with. Yep. Ty, let's be real clear. There was uh -huh. a black woman by the name of Mary McLeod Bethune. In her right. last will, Mary McLeod Bethune said, amongst things, I leave you a thirst for education. I leave you respect for the use of power. Mm -hmm. I leave you respect for the use of the power. We can talk about crack cocaine or, or methamphetamines or anything else, but there is no, no drug more seductive than power. Mm -hmm. That is what this is. This idea that, that for power's sake, these folks are watching the tanning of America. They're watching America tan in color of leadership and tan in color of its population. And there is a strong desire for them to hold on to power. And the best way that you can hold on to power, the one ingredient that any dictator needs, and, and, and Ben talked about fascism. We need to understand what that is. You know, when, when, when you start banning books, see, they're at the point that they don't even give a damn about democracy. That's what January 6th was about. When you can, when you can say, and, and listen to the Republican Party, listen to the, 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 the black faces of the Republican Party, or the Republican Party themselves. Well, mm -hmm. the American people want to move past that. 
How do you move past an attack on democracy? Democracy. The other time that they did it was during the Civil War. And what did they do? When those traitors led the secession and fired against this government, now once the war was over, they returned them to power. So January 6th, that wasn't the first time we seen that. You think, uh, do you think uh, some, because we, we know that there, there allegedly are some elected officials in the Senate and in the House on the federal level who uh, in some sort of way may have uh, participated in uh, carrying out what happened on January the 6th. We've seen hundreds and hundreds of Americans get punished, some for a, a year, six years, uh, uh, over 10 years, multiple years. Is there is there a point where some of those elected officials are held accountable also? No, no, nowhere near the point. And I'm going to tell you this. Look at every, see, America is, is clear about this. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. clear about the rich and powerful. I and mean, you don't understand this. When those folks led the the the, the, the Secession, those tra- they were traitors. This is treason we're talking about. Yeah. Why is that so hard for us to say? Why is that so hard for us to say in this country to to call to call the physical um, attack on the uh, our nation's capital because it only it's only been penetrated once before now. And that was with that was during the Revolutionary War by the British, right? And we're talking treason. Why is it so hard for us to say that word? When that's particular, that's specifically what what many say happened on that on because, that day. Because because white folks have a hard time, damn near impossible time, holding themselves accountable. They need a scapegoat. They need it. see one of the things America prided itself on on January twentieth is the peaceful transfer of power. America loves to tell the whole world, mm-hmm. "Look at us! Look at our democracy! We have a peaceful transfer of power." Well, how do how do how do those white uh, 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 Americans, those white elected officials, who actually believe in saving our the ones who have spoken out and stood up and said, you know what, this is wrong, and these people need to be punished, and some who've stood up and said, you know what, even Donald Trump needs to be held accountable. Um, what it, what what more can 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 they do and we do in order to make sure nothing something like this doesn't happen? Hold them accountable. Photo book absolutely hold them accountable. Your mm-hmm. ignorance of the law, no excuse. Oh, yeah. when, you, when you start talking about see see January 6th, this was an attack against democracy. This violated the peaceful transfer of power. So what right does America have to go into any other country? and talk about a peaceful transfer of power to try to teach anybody about democracy based on what we saw on January 6th. And until you hold them accountable, look at every Trump, Trump, Trump is Teflon now. They Teflon done. They, they Teflon done. Nothing okay. sticks to them. That's what's, but that's what happens to people in power. I'll say it again. Let me make this point though, Ty. When you got white folks who led a breakup of the union. They mm-hmm. fired on America as the Confederacy. And mm-hmm. then when the war is over, you return them to power, yet you can lock up black men and tell them that they no longer have a right to vote forever, yet they still have to pay taxes? So you tell me what is what is the worst of the two. Some Somebody who committed a crime, paid their time, paid their debt to society, but now when they come out, they still required to pay taxes, but you take away their fundamental right to vote, and yet 
the white folks who led this, this nation into a civil war. You even got forts. You got military forts today named after them. You got statues erected in their honor. You can't hold them accountable. So now look at this. Look at what is happening at the Supreme Court. How dare America talk about justice? And now so, you got all of this proof of what Clarence Thomas is doing. You got all of this proof of what Trump did. You got all of all of this information, and you can't hold these people accountable. So now no. we're, we're we're the uh, our country is the longest uh, surviving, lasting democracy on the planet, if I'm not mistaken, right? And do you, do you think we're at a crossroads in our country where, um, and, and back to the question that I asked uh, earlier, are we able to choose accountability over institutionalism? Are, are we willing to are we willing to 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 hold people accountable in, at some point and hold people accountable in this country? Because I, I believe we are at a crossroads. I do. I think we are at a crossroads where you have a you have you have some people, some radical people um, who feel like, you know what, the, the, the demographics are changing in this country. Um, things are, are changing in a way that they feel like it may not benefit them the way that it, it previously did. But do real quick, do you think that we are at that crossroads in this country where we have to make a decision? Now, let me be very clear. The words accountability and choice do not belong in the same sentence. Mm -hmm. Accountability is a zero-sum situation. When you do something, mm -hmm. you are to be held accountable to it. We don't, we should, there should be no, the only time there's a choice when it comes to accountability is when it comes to the wealthy. Yeah. That's the only time. You let me, every, every one of us knows that if that had been a Black Lives Matter type of situation on January 6th, they'd still be mopping up the blood from that situation. Mm. So accountability and choice do not belong in the same sentence. Especially, especially, there is nobody that is serving as a public servant that cannot, if you cannot look at what happened on January 6th as an attack against democracy, and something is very, very much wrong with you. The same thing with the man in the books. It is at the core of democracy, of our freedom of speech, freedom of press, and yet you think that you're qualified to ban books? Now, you're talking about some of these books that they're banned. I got to believe that they banned the book from the I, first black woman to win a, a, a Pulitzer Prize for fiction. <laughs> yeah. They taught at Tougaloo College, Alice Walker, The Color Purple. Imagine this could be banned if it ain't already banned. So we gotta we gotta wrap it up now. We gotta have you back on the show because we were getting into it. We were definitely getting into it just now, my man. Dr. Mack, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for educating us, sharing us, sharing with us your wisdom and your accomplishments. We gotta have you on again. I, I gotta bring you back on because we like I, I told you on the phone, we bear we rarely get through our whole little schedule on this show, and we probably made it maybe a quarter of the way through because the conversation okay, got it's an absolute pleasure. Thank yeah, you thank so you so much. much. Thank you so much. And thank you all out there for tuning in to this week's episode of You Talk, I Listen, We Do. Our guest next week will be Miss Rukia Lamumba, who is currently running for House District 72. My name is Ty Pinkers, and I'm running for United States Senate in 2024. Please visit my website at www.typinkins.com to volunteer, donate, and help move our grassroots people-focused campaign forward. You can also find me on all my social media platforms, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, at the handle 
at Ty Pinkins, T-Y-P-I-N-K-I-N-S. So join us again next Wednesday right here at WMPR in Jackson, Mississippi for another episode of You Talk, I Listen, We Do. Peace out.